everybody. Uh, welcome to another episode of Cinema Wheeler Today. It's uh, Sean, Tony, and Scott once again. And hey, we're joined by a very special guest, uh, one of our favorite people, uh, the amazingly talented Mark DiBerzio. <laughs> hey, Mark. Hi, how are you? Good, good. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Today we're going to discuss uh, a movie that I think... Um, it's turned out to be one of the most influential rom-coms, romantic comedies of the last uh, 20 years or so, uh, When Harry Met Sally. Yeah. Um, the movie was <laughs> released back in 1989, and I, I think it's the movie that made Meg Ryan a major star. And Was it her first movie? She had a few movies under her belt. She okay. was in point. Top Gun. Was she? Briefly. She was. <laughs> I think she was. She uh, wasn't the main in that. She was no. married to... Uh, Tom Cruise's buddy, what's his name? Wasn't it the guy, uh, uh, the uh, guy from ER? Ice or yes. Uh, no, no, not, not Val Kilmer. Anthony Edwards. Anthony Edwards. Yes. Yeah, she was Anthony Edwards' wife, and he died and she cried. <laughs> that was her big breakthrough. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is uh, considered by a lot of people to be a classic at this point in time in that genre of mm-hmm. romantic comedy. And. Uh, I remember when it came out, like back in 1989. I don't. I know. Well, what? <laughs> I was, I was an adult. Yeah, yeah. I don't really remember that too well. I didn't see it when it first came out, actually, because the first time I heard of the movie, oddly enough, was in a Batman comic. Really? Yes, because I was heavily into Batman in that that summer. That's why I remember it vividly, because that was the year of Batman. Is that Tim Burton's Batman? Yes, okay. it was a Tim Burton Batman film. So I had a Batman comic. Not, comics always had advertisements, usually for upcoming films in the back pages. And weirdly enough, they had an advertisement for When Harry Met Sally. Wow. And I remember the title stuck out for me because it's like you don't see people's names and titles, actual pro, you know yeah. first names in titles. And it was this poster, it was the one sheet of Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal looking at each other between, I think, the Twin Towers. Or, the, or was, it the set, was it the scene where they're in the park and it's like fall time? No, That's this was like the cover of the movie, right? This was them looking up on the. They were like giant-sized Meg Ryan. Like, think oh, of Meg Ryan right. and Billy Crystal as Godzilla. Gotcha. <laughs> and they're looking at the twin towers. Now that would be a bad. Wow. As a person that loved Godzilla films, that really gave a bad <laughs> <laughs> indication to me of what this movie was really about. I thought it was like giant humanoids. Oh my God. <laughs> well, if anybody, for uh, all you listeners, wrong. if anyone can find a copy or image of this photo. Please post it to our Facebook page. We're now on Facebook at Cinema Wheel Arte. Um, you can find us on Facebook. So we'd love to to see that. I've never seen this photo before. Neither. I have seen it many times, and it's it's a it's a classic photo. And uh, we're looking at it right now. Actually, okay. Scott shows us across the room. Ah, uh, so, so they're bigger. basically they're, they're stepping much on bigger than Oh, yeah, they're yeah. bigger than they're, uh, what city was that? New was York. That's, New York? That's Manhattan, yeah. Manhattan. I actually like that one sh- sheet because those are the kind of posters I like because it, it kind of gives you, it grabs you immediately and gets you interested in a project. Because I want to see why they're stepping on New York City. Exactly. Even though they may not technically. Yes. But in a way, they loom Could over. Could be metaphorically. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so, so that was my first exposure. But I also, looking back on it, I was like, why is this in a Batman comic? You know, yeah. like this is an odd demographic to be hitting thirteen-year-old boys. You know, like the moms purchasing these comics for the kids. 
That's a great point. That Carrie Fisher uh, connection. Maybe exactly, like they, yeah. They, they, they clearly folk featured her in that poster. You know, the, the moms the like to voice. look in the back with the x-ray, uh, x-ray binoculars, <laughs> glasses. That's right. Do the moms look in through the comic book to find if there's any movies they'd be interested in in the back? Exactly. exactly. I like Batman. We'll see if there's any movies I would see. So I remember like not necessarily seeing it that first round, but... What really started sticking out over time for me, because it was a romantic comedy, I wasn't really, that's not that's something not I was, style. at least back then it wasn't. And, but I remember, I was always interested in movies, I remember at Oscar time, they kept focusing on this delicatessen scene, the famous scene, you know, Absolutely. with uh, the faking the orgasm and everything. I'll have what she's having. Yeah, that was, that was shown a lot, I'm like, oh, that's, adults seem to really be responding to this scene, you yeah. know, and... Uh, I really decided to see it, finally saw it last year. I don't know why it took me so long, but I remember I happened to watch Sleepless in Seattle on a bored night on Netflix. This is another movie I never saw, and I was really engaged with Meg Ryan, so I said, well, maybe I should see what's considered the better movie, which is When Harry Met Sally, finally, and actively do it, and I saw it, and I, you know, really enjoyed it, but (laughs) Mark, what was your first exposure to the movie? I, I, um, honestly, my... My most recent memory of that movie is 19... I saw it when it first came out, but I can only remember... Um, like, I was at somebody's house watching... Or kind of, it was kind of in the background, 1994. I just... I, I cannot... Because I was, like, 22 at the time. Uh, I just do not remember anything <laughs> in my early 20s, <laughs> including watching that movie. <laughs> I, I just oh, remember yeah. some of the lines. Like, my, my sisters used to like the... Uh, uh, something about pepper and paprikash or something like that. Oh, I think we were going um, to He's trying to make her talk like in Mexican. We're language. going to yeah, talk yeah. like this for the rest of the day. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's kind of taken off too, and it's it's owner right. But uh, uh, Tony and Scott, what is your? I mean, I think you guys just saw it recently. Yeah, right? we actually just saw watched it last, it last night. night for the first time for both of us. I've been aware really? of the movie for a long time. Same you haven't here. seen it. Never, no way. Uh, outside of like maybe a few scenes flipping through the channels, but I've never sat down and watched the whole thing through. And uh, yeah, but I've always been aware of this movie. It's like because it's a big, just I, the name alone. Yeah, I think this. I think this put Nora Ephron on the map as far as movies is concerned. I'm not completely sure about that, but it had to be one of her first. You know, because she was the queen of these rom com. She went on to direct some, didn't she? Yeah, this was actually her breakthrough, I think, as a prominent voice. And it was directed by Rob Reiner. Uh And one thing as a director that Rob Reiner has done frequently, especially at the peak of his career, which was the late 80s, early 90s as a director, Mm -hmm. is that he was able to capture a writer's voice so distinctly. Like, he almost, like, some directors like Martin Scorsese or Stanley Kubrick, they're like auteurs where they have a very distinct voice no matter who's writing for them. It's very distinct. You can just tell it's a Martin Scorsese. Yeah, right. You, I, I watched Main Streets one time, and this was after I watched Goodfellas, and it's like watching uh, pre-Goodfellas. It's it's yeah. such yeah. the same thing. It's good, but it's it's like it's, it's like his warm up for Goodfellas. Right. Goodfellas is his warm up for Casino. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a trilogy. And Casino's his warm up for Gangs of New York, so it's kind of goes in, in circles. But uh, Rob Reiner, uh, when he started out as a director, he directed Spinal Tap. Now Spinal Tap to me captures what would be Christopher Guest's voice as a director and as a writer, which is this improvisational style, yeah, very satirical. Really yeah. and, and does it almost like the definitive version of that. 
Stand By Me captured Stephen King, even though Stephen King probably wasn't the screenwriter on that film. It was his novel, and he kind of captured Stephen King in a way that other directors kind of struggled to do on screen. Um, he did A Few Good Men, which was written yeah. by uh, Aaron, Aaron Sorkin. Sorkin. And yeah. that was what really put, I think, Sorkin as a prominent fixture Rob on the map. Rob Reiner did Princess Bride. He did, yeah. which was uh, William Goldman. Mm -hmm. yeah. Who was a great, the book. Yeah, yeah, he was a great screenwriter. He also wrote the screenplay for Butch Cassidy and The oh, Sundance wow. Kid. Uh, and so he has a real talent, I think, for adapting. And Nora Ephron is up with that. Like, she, like he was really good friends with her, and that's how the, the movie originated, which is they... Um, Are, they might have been friends with Benefits. They could have. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know something I don't know about this? That was well, a, I just, you know, it's very generous of him to give her her own movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, she was actually married to, I think, either Woodward or Bernstein. I can't remember, but it was one of those guys. That was her husband. Because uh, I think she was also a columnist or a newspaper reporter. And what happened was, I think Rob Reiner was going through the divorce with Petty Marshall at the time. Wow, they were married? They were married, yeah. Oh, my goodness, wow. And I didn't see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> hey, they're prominent uh, TV stars. Yeah, they are. Saturday, so. Well, I mean, and they're great directors. I, love, I mean, Penny oh. Marshall did one of my favorite movies, um, A League of Their Own. Oh, big. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, she's and big. Girl. I mean, she's, she's definitely earned her keep as a director, I'd say. Yeah, she has. And... Um, I think they, they got divorced, and I think he was talking. He was friends with Nora Ephron, and they were just having conversations and working. became a screenplay. Conversations, in quotes. <laughs> yeah, I'm just yeah. kidding. <laughs> Hope we don't get sued by the yeah, Rob Reiner and Nora Ephron. Rest in peace, Nora. But, uh, <laughs> she dead? She's dead, yeah. She died about three or four years ago, Aww. I think. So. I, I now I feel she, really bad. I guess she uh, did something recently. Maybe maybe they did her one of her. Yeah. I think the reason you feel that way is because so many rom-coms, I think, feel like watered down Nora Ephron now. Yeah. So you probably think, like, if you see a rom-com, like, oh, that must be a Nora well, Ephron there's movie. also definitely formulas to rom-coms. Just as there is in any genre of a movie. You know, there's definitely your formula. There's two people meet, usually in a meet-cute type of setting. Mm -hmm. You know, and then there's some sort of slight conflict, like they can't be together even when they want to be. One of them's married or seeing someone or engaged or who knows what. Somehow, time goes by, and they end up finding each other again. But there's still this slight conflict. That's, that's the plot so of this movie. So then something happens. <laughs> yeah. It's true. There's formulas. <laughs> something happens, and then all of a sudden, there's a sad music montage, and each one of them is trying to move on with their lives, and then some more time passes, and then they realize they love each other, and one, or, one of them, usually, or both of them, do some sort of very dramatic act in an effort to show the other one how they feel, and then they kiss, and that's the end. I think the reason that this resume resonates with me more than most rom-coms is this feels like a real relationship between two people that are very relatable. Mm -hmm. And it's not overtly gimmicky. I mean, the only thing you can really peg on it as a gimmick is that... It's predictable? Well... Well, as a, as a movie. I mean, as a rom-com, it was predictable. I think... Like to, the formula. Right. Going back to the formula, yeah. I think what it is to me is, like, it's like, can a man and woman be friends without getting involved sexually mm -hmm. and obviously it answers in a way no but yeah. it also leaves out the possibility that it could have gone the other way too I guess to but some degree but. I also think um, too they were attracted to each other from the get go Yeah, whether they, were. they wanted to admit it or not so with that being said I mean you know one of my best friends of all time is a man and we've never been sexually intertwined in any way shape or form 
So I do believe from experience that you can have really good, I mean, Mark is one of my very good best friends and he's a man. You know, you can have great guy friends and not have any kind of sexual, you for example. You right. Know, I can't say that for Scott. But, <laughs> that would be very um, interesting yeah. if you and I had sexual attention. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's very awkward. This yeah. that yeah. is a movie. Right there. <laughs> I'm writing this down. Thank you, Tony. I, so anyway, I, yeah. I do believe that men and women can be friends when there's not an immediate attraction. If one or two partners are immediate, attractively attracted to each other in some way, shape, or form, then there might be some issues down the line. I but. think the big problem, too, is that they are attracted to each other, but they're so... They have such high expectations individually for romance, and that they well, have high different. standards. Yeah. yeah, they're very different. And it'll be interesting because, in comparison to Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby, who play their best friends, mm-hmm. those two are like, "Hey, we like each other. It's not that complicated. Yeah. We're hit it off. We yeah. get married. We're happy." Harry and Sally are like, they're always finding reasons not to get together. They're almost like it's almost because, like they're afraid of happiness. Well, so. I, it was probably because they were afraid of. Um, rocking the boat with their friendship. Think about it. Once you kiss someone, you can't take that back. That's going to change the dynamic of your friendship forever. Meaning it's going to go to the next level and things are going to work out great or it's not and then you lose that person as a really good friend. So it's a very delicate line to cross and I think that's probably where a lot of their struggle came from was okay, like knowing your boundaries and not wanting to cross that line. And plus they were both very concerned about what the other person felt and thought you know, there were some scenes where um, you could tell that they liked each other, but then they brush it off, or, oh, no, no, that didn't mean anything, when clearly it meant something to both of them. So I think they had a lot of pride issues individually, and that could be because of their, um, I don't want to say failed relationships, but because of the relationships in their past, Mm -hmm. they just maybe had a lot of pride or were afraid of getting hurt again, which I think is very understandable. When you've been hurt, you're not exactly you know, screaming up and down and, you know, you're a little bit, you take your time the next go around. You're not so quick to jump into it. Do you think there was also some neurotic self-absorption on each Well, that's what I mean. Too. There yeah. was a lot of pride, self-absorption, a lot yeah. of, I'm not going to, no, I'm going to be the first one to say it doesn't mean anything. You know, I think they had their own insecurities and struggles. And when, you know, it's like that old saying, pride comes before the fall. They had to learn the hard way. And then at the end, I think, um, each character, character individually, you know, let their guard down and said, you know what, I do love this person. Why am I so embarrassed or ashamed or worried about saying it? And then, of course, that's where, you know, it ends. Mm-hmm. One thing, though, that I really loved about the film was the um, interviews in between scenes when it had the elderly couples getting interviewed about when they first met or how they fell in love or, what, you know, each one had a different story. I really liked that. I think that was a nice touch and it was really cute. What's interesting with me is that was one aspect of the movie that I, for some reason, didn't like resonate with me as much. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, it felt like this is not really necessary to the mm-hmm. movie. It's almost like the real focus is between Harry and Sally. And I think seeing all these contented couples coming up, I didn't know what it necessarily added to the story. But, but it talked well. It talked. I think that the thing that made it. Um, I agree. Was it really necessary? Probably not. But I think the point of it and the purpose of it was to kind of get the audience in that mindset and that mode of that, you know what, love strikes at different times. That one couple that really struck out for me was the couple that met when they were teenagers and then something happened, he went to war or something. I don't remember what the 
I only saw the movie once, so I don't remember what it was about. But then, you know, like 20 years later, he sees her coming out of a store. And then they pick up where they left off, and they're in love, and now they were married 50 years or whatever. Um, I think it, it, it's kind of filling, it's warming the hearts of the audiences with the notion of love's possible at any stage in your life, at any time, even if it seems unrealistic or the circumstances don't seem believable, love could happen. Um, at least that, that's what I interpreted well, I think it to be. I, uh, I agree to that point. I think all those stories were like, they range from someone arranged arrange marriage exactly. to people you know falling in love. I think it was like saying there's no right path to yeah. find what you're looking for. Exactly. That you can go down multiple paths, I think was the point of those. Yeah, because there was the one couple that were married yeah. and then got divorced. And then the husband got married like two or three more times. And then they, the first wife, they got remarried. Like, what mm -hmm. was it, 35 years to the day or something yeah. after they got married the first time? So, again, it just shows you that the course of love is never easy. And in Sally and Harry's case, that's really, that's what we're watching. Well, it was a guy doing a stand-up act for 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'll be honest. This movie just felt like Billy Crystal doing a stand-up act to Meg Ryan for an hour and a half. And that, okay, that and also I have to say that I could not help but think that it was sort of like a watered-down, don't hate me, Sean, kind of like a watered-down, mediocre Annie Hall. I completely agree. <laughs> you do? <laughs> well, well I, I like the movie a lot, but... I definitely think it's watered down Annie Hall. Yeah. Because Woody Allen, I think the difference is Woody Allen is such a neurotic, idiosyncratic personality. And Annie Hall has such a kind of open-ended edge because you don't know where this relationship's going. He actually ends it with the relationship breaking yeah. up, which is yeah. a very daring thing to do. And it's, but it's the most influential rom-com of all time. Because that kind of stuff happens. Yes, exactly. Happy endings don't always happen. I would just say I would elevate this slightly higher than mediocre because I think it's I think there's really good chemistry between the two stars. That's true. And I think compared to Pretty Woman, which came out at the same time, that's a pure fantasy. I never really yeah. understood why pure Pretty Woman took off. I guess the reason I use the word mediocre is because I felt in so many ways that Meg Ryan was trying very hard to like be an Annie Hall type character. I feel like some, at some, especially in the beginning, I feel she was really, and I know she wore she was a pantsuit. <laughs> yeah, but well, I mean, it was there was a scene where she dressed like Annie Hall. I mean, yeah, yeah. She, the cup, the one that's on the picture on the cover. But I just mean the way that she carried herself and how she was. I feel like she was trying at times to be overly quirky, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and then even the orgasm scene, just the way that she does the orgasm and like how she's kind of conducting herself. I just kept thinking, like, why is it? Why am I not watching Diane Keaton? You know, or I feel like I should be watching Diane Keaton, you know. Um, and maybe as a young actress, she looked up to Diane Keaton and tried to model <clears throat> after her. And that's probably very likely. And you can't fault anyone for doing that. But at the same time, being a big fan of Annie Hall and Diane Keaton, I just was kind of like, eh. So, I don't know. What do you think, Mark? Do you want to say <laughs> something? Well, the only thing. <laughs> We're talking. Mark, what are you? <laughs> don't interrupt us. You know, we have a yeah. debate going on. The, the only thing... Um, you know, the famous orgasm scene, and I just watched it recently, and I realized it's not a really, really convincing orgasm, even. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just, like, really ballsy for her to do that, yeah. but at the same time, it just, it does. Especially like, in 1988 or whenever it was yeah. supposed to be. 
It's a, it doesn't sound like a, a real orgasm. So that, uh, that kind That's of what I mean. Me. I felt like she was trying too hard. There yeah. was just some kind of element of just trying too hard that and you came don't, across to me. And you don't see Billy Crystal's reaction if he thought that was a, a, good, yeah. a good example. Yeah. <laughs> it just goes, cuts to the, the punchline and it goes away. One thing that I will say that I really enjoyed about this film, aside from the fact that I do feel like it was well-directed and well-cast for the most part, um, I do really like the adult nature of it, considering the time, 1988, probably filmed in 87. I really enjoy the adult nature of the way that the film just is carried. You know, they talk about, you know, sexual relationships with people. They talk about divorces. They talk about real-life things that adults discuss and live. And I think that that was really great, especially in the late 80s when sex and things of that nature were quite taboo still. Mm -hmm. in movies and TV. It just wasn't as common. Um, the 90s, like shows like Friends, definitely broke some more barriers. But I definitely um, enjoyed that aspect of the film, even though it still remained in, in some ways very 80s, which I think is, was good. I'm nostalgic for that. I do enjoy that it was a, a little bit modern. Um, and that's probably why it's considered and carries on to be a classic, is because it's very relevant um, even how many years later. 20 years later. Yeah, and I think uh, that's very true. And uh, getting back to what Mark was saying about the, the the orgasm scene, which is probably the most famous scene, it's the one zeitgeisty scene that's always taken off. Mm -hmm. It's in every Oscar mm -hmm. clip montage, you yeah. know, when they're going through all the classics the last 100 years or so. That's what I'll have what she's having. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a classic line. I think it's completely out of character for Sally, too, and I've heard a lot of critics say that. Yeah. Like, even though it's it's a well-written comic, comedic scene, in, in a vacuum, it's a well-written comedic scene, Sally is not the type of person that would do that. Yeah. I mean, it's, right. it's, it's, she's, she's very uptight, she's very organized. Uh, Annie Hall would Definitely. probably be more like, like somebody free-spirited would mm -hmm. do that, and uh, I think... But I think maybe the reasoning there is like the comic conceit is so strong and we want to do it so badly that even if it's not something that happens organically to mm -hmm. the character, we're still going to force it through because we think it's going to work. Or, you know, I always have my psychological tendencies when I kind of analyze movies, but it could also be showing or trying to represent the fact that Sally is becoming more comfortable with Harry. And that maybe even becoming more comfortable with herself and her own sexuality and um, maybe even growing like a little bit like to the fact that she would even consider doing that. Maybe it's kind of to show the audience that, hey, like this girl's starting to, she's starting to lighten up, okay? She's not taking herself so seriously anymore. And, you know, she's starting to feel really comfortable around this guy. And that's kind of, you know, the relationship or friendship at that point is starting to kind of blossom a little bit. Because going forward in the rest of the movie, I don't feel like she was, at, she certainly wasn't as uptight as she was in the very beginning. Yeah. I feel like that was sort of the tipping point in her personality where she started to become a little bit more lighthearted. Yeah, and it's, I, I do think that, and for, she had to lighten up to, to be around someone like Billy Crystal, yeah. who's just like, has no inhibitions. I mean, the guy's sitting in a store. He starts doing karaoke in the store brilliantly. Like, he is brilliant. Billy and Crystal. She, she joined in with him. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, that's so. the thing that got me. Like, he is, he is an entertainer. He's, a, he's an entertainer, high-quality entertainer-level guy that doesn't do entertainment at all. He's a, like a political activist or something. What was he, like a political consultant? I think he was a poli yeah, yeah, yeah. political consultant. But he's like a high-level entertainer. <laughs> 
Which I guess people can have talents to do this stuff, but he's 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 definitely not, you know. And they don't show their careers I, at all. I, that was a, that was something typing. I was going to yeah. talk about. First of all, I feel like his character should have been a salesman or some something a little bit more extroverted and people oriented than perhaps politics. But that was one of the I guess sort of I don't want to say an issue, but one of the things the elements that I didn't like about it so much was the fact that it never showed their careers or day to day. It just only showed the times that they would talk together. Mm-hmm. And the reason I guess I didn't like that so much is careers are a very important and critical part of everybody's lives. And when mm-hmm. you're in a relationship with someone, um, you will be working, you know, 40 hours of the week for the most part. You, you will be at this job doing whatever. Um, so I thought that that was a little odd that they never really talked about or showed much about their careers or anything like that. It was always just fun time. I think that there, there's a reason for that is like it was really focusing on the evolution of these two people and their relationship over the years and how it evolved. And I think maybe they thought it would get too cluttered if we're yeah. seeing all their. Because the problem with side, yeah. the problem with career scenes and comedies is that you have these quirky side characters that that's really true. don't have anything to the story, and that's yeah. what writers tend to do. A lot of I don't think a lot of Hollywood writers have had a lot of day jobs. That's probably part of the problem with a lot that's of those true movies. Too. Yeah. Well, he does what Bruno Kirby is. He's like, hey, let's go do a sports activity and talk about our relationships. Yeah. <laughs> Not realistic at all. <laughs> they go to a football game and they talk about the divorce. They go, they're playing baseball. And, yeah. and Billy Crystal's really an asshole because yeah. that kid comes up to use the machine and he pretty much just tells the kid off. You remember? Mm-hmm. And uh, the batting machine. And uh, yeah, yeah I, Billy Crystal's character is really weird. I, I, I don't, it's almost like at some, some point it's so forward and so in your face. I, I think um, I would have liked to have seen her call him out a few more times than she actually did because he was beyond. But like, she was also very self righteous. Yeah. She was yeah. in her ways. I mean, she, especially in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I, so, but I think he liked that. That's yeah. kind of what challenged him. He liked getting a rise out of her. Mm-hmm. You know, like when he would ask her things, and they'd be like, okay, don't tell me. And then she'd be like, well, if you want to know. Because mm-hmm. he knew she was the type of person that needed to have that last word. She needed to be the one that felt in control. Yeah, I, I, I kind of kind of see how that would go that way. But I think the problems that we're having with his character with Harry mm-hmm. have more to do with the actor playing him than maybe Harry. Because I think, because I think Billy Crystal was involved with the writing process as well. Full confession, I'm not the biggest Billy Crystal fan in the world. What? No, yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> because while I like him, and I certainly respect his contributions to comedy, I think that Billy Crystal can be a little too mainstream and, and safe. Um, and uh, See, that's kind of how I feel. Uh, oh, go ahead. You oh, I was, I was just thinking, um, and Rob, Robert Downey wasn't like a huge star back then, but I wonder if he could have. He would have been good. Robert I don't know, I'm just trying yeah. to think of uh, who, who would have been like a different person. Yeah, Robert Downey would be... Because well, he could do a lot of what Billy Crystal can do with yeah. that fast talking. Yeah. Actually, you know what? I don't really hate Billy Crystal in this movie. It might sound like I do. I just think this movie's kind of like a fantasy in that level where it's like these people... At least Billy Crystal's character just can't really exist in real life. It doesn't really... No one's that quick. I mean, he, his mind... The dialogue that he says is sharp and there's no break ever. Yeah. I mean, it's like no one is that... No one has no ums or ahs. It's kind of like Vince Vaughn in a little way. Like yeah, it's sort so of fast. It's just so fast and witty. It's like, how can anyone really be that but way? If, you if you, but if you look at, uh, I've, I've seen, there's a movie called Made, and it was like Swingers Part 2. Yeah. And it's Vince Vaughn, and he just 
Vince Vaughn and uh, who's, who's the other guy that's chubby? Uh, he's chubby now, but uh, John, uh, John Favreau. Favreau. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so it's just, and he does that. He he just uh, it's just very you know yeah. stream of consciousness, and yeah. he can just talk like that. And I, they showed like the outtakes, and the outtakes were kind of eh. But there's like you know fifty percent of it is just unbelievable watching watching him do that. So th- there are a few people that can yeah. do that. I, I don't know if Billy Crystal. I guess because he, he does like you know award shows, but I mean, is that scripted or? Is or that, someone told me that. Probably the award shows are probably. But like Vince Vaughn and Jeff Brown for Brothers, they it's completely improvised the scenes yeah. that they some well, of the scenes that they do together. Well, someone told me that uh, I was that on Princess Bride that Billy Crystal did all of his dialogue improvised. Really, it's like they have hours of him. Oh yeah. He actually hurt Carrie Ells. Um, because his ribs were hurting because he was laughing because he was late. I mean, Billy Crystal, is, I like him in this movie. Yeah. I, I do. I, I like him. Mm-hmm. It's very old school kind of style. I mean, mm-hmm. he's, I'm sure he's a Woody Allen, you know, from that line of yeah. that, that, you know, uh, lots, yeah. of, lots of jokes about being a Jew. But, but Woody <laughs> Allen, I feel like, just yeah. has a different pace than, yeah. you know, Billy Crystal. A little bit more neurotic. Yeah. Like insecure. Billy Crystal has no insecurities. Mm-hmm. Or at least he doesn't. And even when he states him like he's depressed, it comes off like he's like. As a joke, almost. Yeah, it's like, I'm depressed. I'm just going to sit here and moan. You know, and he starts moaning. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I think the beginning, the opening scene where he, they're in college mm-hmm. and he's like, they're driving in the car. Yeah. yeah. I always felt like it's hard for me to picture Billy Crystal as this morose, <laughs> cynical guy because there's nothing. He doesn't. It's not like, like if you had, like you said, Robert Downey Jr. or somebody else in that role, I'd be like, okay, I get it. Yeah. But in those scenes, well, I think he does a fine job with it, as yeah. good a job as anybody. Sure. It's kind of like, I don't necessarily buy it, because Billy Crystal, he's not an actor that plays a character as much as he's playing. He, he has a sp- distinct persona, and I don't know if you buy off that he is. Although, you could also argue this character is just faking that to get attention, too. And that could have he been... He could have been, because he was young, and maybe that's like... And you also think about it, too. He was going away at college, so his mind is filled with all these ideas. And he also was a you know, political science major, so political science people are usually typically very opinionated. Yeah. Um, so that could also be maybe why his character is like that. But... Um, you know, he's young, feels like he's invincible, getting ready to move to New York City to start his life. I'm sure he did feel very confident. The dialogue yeah. is not like a, especially in the early scenes, like Tarantino, where they're like breaking down things, mm-hmm. like, you know, like, oh, man, I can't, yeah, you know, yeah. these, these, these kind of philosophical discussions that come out of nowhere, like, oh, you can't, you know, you can't be friends uh, with a woman, which is, there's a basis of a book that, uh, <laughs> Steve Harvey wrote called. <laughs> he said that for the same reason. Steve Harvey wrote a book just based on that whole uh, eighteen-hour drive from Chicago to New York for Billy Crystal. Who knew? Um, <laughs> oh my God! This guy, you're so well read. <laughs> not well read. I just remember Steve Harvey was like, "You can't, you can't, because uh, you know, you, you want to have sex with the woman. It's always there. You know, it's always, that's, and that's exactly what Billy Crystal said. Oh yeah, it's like, think like." <laughs> It's called Think Like a Man. There's two oh. movies. There's a sequel. Oh, and I'll tell you, if there's one person I take advice from, <laughs> it's Steve Harvey, yeah. you know, especially after the uh, Miss Universe fiasco. Oh, um, I, I think, in general, um, the reason that I, I kind of like this movie a lot, you know, is probably in comparison to other rom-coms. Because I definitely look at, like, it's definitely watered down Annie Hall. It's def- really, you could say, just watered down Woody Allen. 
Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure Rob Reiner and Nora Ephron, because they're from the New York area, they're big Woody Allen, you know, Rob Reiner's from California. Well, he was so but prominent they're, at that time. I mean, how couldn't they be yeah, and, influenced by him? Right. And I think that Woody Allen took the romantic comedy to a higher level. Like, his were, they were personal self-expressions of how he was feeling in his life at that time. Like, they were personalized. We could also say it's good that he doesn't go too far into his life at times, but yeah. just go with what we know. You know, like Annie Hall, I think, is like the gold standard of romantic comedy. It's kind of like the Citizen Kane of romantic comedies. Yeah. I think Carrie McSally is one of the few that kind of rises underneath that level because there's a lot of terrible romantic comedies out there. I think it, it's probably the one genre well, that Well, because they all few... just keep following that formula and they just keep getting worse and worse because mm-hmm. they're brainless. You know, they are. They're brainless. They're, they're just following the formula. They're plugging it in like it's an equation, just getting whoever the big star is of today to fill the roles, and then they're moving on. Well, I, I, yeah, there was one that I saw recently. I, I really like um, <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, the guy that did The Office. Uh, Steve Carell? No, no, the, the, the British guy. Uh, Ricky oh, Gervais. Ricky Gervais, and he has a partner, Steve Merchant. He's like six seven, and yeah. he's just like... And he did a, a romantic comedy. Well, he did a show called Hello, Ladies. And it was that's the same exact formula, and it's just like Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant. You always expect them to do something so different. You know, it's it's always a self-deprecating humor mm-hmm. and getting um, you know embarrassing yourself incredibly to the uh, umpteenth level. And uh, Stephen Merchant did like, and it was really really funny. But it was the ending was just that standard. Uh, there was like uh, you know a moment where they. The girl figured out that she really liked Stephen Merchant, and you know it was I, just I, I predictable. Just, I, yeah, so yeah. predictable. I just, so predictable. Even though it doesn't start out predictable, mm-hmm. I mean, this movie, I, I, the title doesn't make any sense to me it, the, the, <laughs> <laughs> because there's no when Harry met Sally. Because even the opening scene, they seem like they knew each other. Yeah, they kind of did. Like, was that supposed to be the first time they met she each other? She might have knew yeah. of him because she was he was dating her girlfriend, remember? Yeah, yeah but they so acted she, like yeah, they knew each other. She, they didn't yeah. act like they just met. They acted like they knew each other. I think a better title would have been Harry and Sally, not <laughs> yeah. when Harry met Sally, when you think about it. Or yeah. the story of Harry and Sally or yeah. something. Or the ballad of Harry and Sally. Yeah. There you but go. then you couldn't have, because they had those uh, the couples and they were talking about how they first met and everything. And that was... Yeah. But uh, that wasn't the basis... The, they they I, met multiple times. I, yeah. I guess that I guess oh, that's okay. the point because they they kept meeting each other for you had like three, you know. Although once they got to the present time, they just kind of went with it, and then yeah. they, there wasn't any more. Well, they did like four months later or whatever, but um, it did. You know, they met each other at certain times. It keeps coming back into their life, but um, you know, I don't know, like. I, I, I'm pretty. I, I'm pretty much a self-professed hopeless romantic. I mean, I really am, and always have been. Rom-coms have always never exactly really been my favorite type of movies, though. Mm-hmm. But I've always enjoyed romantic comedies that were unpredictable. And I really prefer stories that aren't exactly love stories. They're just stories about love. Those are ones I tend to gravitate towards What do you more. mean, stories about love? Like, for example, um, The Notebook. That's a love story. Okay. Annie Hall is a story about love. 
They don't end up together in the end. They're not in love the, the whole movie. It's a, it's a timeline of a relationship, and it's a story about love. So would love story be a story about love? <laughs> love story is you. So. Okay, love story is the exception. It's both. <laughs> it's both. Um, but I do like love story. Because somebody dies, the girl dies, Exactly, right? yeah. yeah, the girl dies. Well, spoiling love story. And love story is just that. It's, it's more so a story about love. It's not really a People love People come story. to listen to Harry about Sally, and they but get to you know what I mean. Yeah. And I feel kind of like when Harry met Sally, it was that quintessential love story. It wasn't necessarily really a story about love. Um... Just because it had that predictable, happy ending. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I just, especially as I get older, I, I tend to gravitate more towards the Annie Halls and things like that. You know, like Two for the Road, which is a great Audrey Hepburn movie that's, you know, more so a story about love, not necessarily a love story. I will argue in defense of this movie in the sense that it is a character-driven movie. Like, yeah, yeah they do get together yeah. and it has a happy ending. I think it's a yeah. satisfactory happy ending because I kind of, you want to see these characters get together. Sure. And it's about them being people and interacting mm-hmm. as people. There aren't a lot of hijinks like, oh, I better hide this from him. You know, like, yeah. they do a lot of rom-coms yeah. and they don't have the music score going do 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 each minute. And that's another thing. It's well-crafted. Like, yes, mm-hmm. it is predictable. There's no question about sure. that. You know that they're going to get together. But I don't think the enjoyment of the movie is based on the predictability. I think it's listening to these two people and watching them interact and watching as that relationship evolves. I think, for me, that's why mm-hmm. I kind of enjoy it. And I also think, like, the lack of music, which is very much like Woody Allen. Woody Allen uses music very sparingly and very mm-hmm. intelligently in his movies. Yeah. They learn from that very well because they mm-hmm. play a lot of classic standards, which are mostly sung by Harry Connick Jr., which yeah. I think was his he breakthrough. Did the movie for, he did the yeah. music for the movie, yeah. No, his breakthrough was Independence Day. Just, uh, <laughs> like, no question. <laughs> for me, that's the first I ever heard of him. And it's yeah. like, Harry Connick Jr.'s in this. Wow, is he some sort of hotshot actor? No, he's a jazz singer. <laughs> Like, what's he doing in the airplane with Will Smith? Oh, never mind. He and Will Smith had great chemistry for ten minutes in that movie, you know. Yeah, he does an impersonation of Martin Luther King in an airplane. I don't... We could do that movie. (laughs) We don't want to rope it up that rabbit hole of competing Independence Day and Harry Met Sally. But I I think he does a good job with the jazz. So Princess Bride is a great example. Keeping it under the, you know, Rob Reiner vein. It's a great example of how it's a story about love. It's not a love story. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I guess that's what I, I guess that's pro- and 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 I feel kind of like weird saying this because I love I'm a romantic I love love stories I mean one of the reasons I enjoy certain shows is the, for the romantic element <laughs> yeah. of it but um, uh, I don't know and I guess maybe if it wasn't as hyped up as it was maybe I wouldn't feel that way because then it would just be another romantic comedy that is expected and but I guess because it got all the hype and. And then I and then I wonder maybe it got all the hype because of the time it came out. Romantic comedies were still somewhat a thing of the new, at least the formula in which that romantic com- comedy was kind of like following. But I don't know. Well, I think a, a big element of this movie for me, and I think the appeal mm-hmm. is a, a person we haven't mentioned much, which is a huge part of this movie is Meg Ryan, because I had a full confession I had a huge crush on Meg Ryan as a kid. <laughs> Uh, I don't know what it was, but like she grabbed me. And actually, the movie I saw Meg Ryan in more than anything was Interspace. I kept renting Interspace. Not that she was the main reason. I've never seen it. Interspace was this movie made in 1987. It starred Dennis Quaid, which actually became mm. Meg Ryan's real-life husband, and oh, Martin I Short. And I used to rent this a lot. Now, I had a crush on her in a casual way. It wasn't like that's the reason I rented the movie. But I kind of realized going forward... 
and especially when I watched this recently, that I really think Meg Ryan is a great movie star for her generation. You know, a lot of people, she was kind of a contemporary of Julia Roberts when they were both at their peak. Mm -hmm. And Julia Roberts got more publicity and more attention, I think, at times. Well, I think because she had better movie roles. That's uh, probably why. I mean, Pretty Woman put her on the map, and then she started doing all these movies after that. And Were they good movies, though, or are they just popular movies is a good question. You know, that. That, well, that's subjective. That like is, anything. yeah. But what I mean is she was getting these great roles. Like, she was getting roles. Um, and not just doing romantic comedies. Like, Aaron Brockovich was a great film that wasn't a romantic comedy. That was way after Yeah, the but, but I mean, like, she, um, for whatever reason, she just took off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, more it seems. I guess my thing is like I think Meg Ryan. I prefer Meg Ryan to yeah. Julia Roberts. Is what I was with with that because I think Meg Ryan. Number one, I think Meg Ryan has great chemistry with comedic actors. That's something I noticed in this movie. Something I noticed in Inner Space with Martin Short. And there was a obscure comedy from the late '80s called Armed and Dangerous that yeah. starred John Candy and Eugene Levy, and oh, she was boy. in it. I happened to see a lot of obscure Meg Ryan movies in the <laughs> 80s for some reason, but uh, before she was even a star, like, because I guess I liked comedies, and these guys are not what you would consider leading men material traditionally. Eugene yeah. Levy, I think, was her, she was paired with him. She's so what you're saying is, that, that, I think I know what you're getting at. Right, right. Meg Ryan's standards were much lower than Julia Roberts. Right. <laughs> Right, they so were. Thought, so we all thought that we had a shot of her. Exactly. That's what I'm getting at. It's just something about Mary aesthetic here with Meg Ryan. That so I, Meg... I can't compete with Richard here and compare with a short Jewish... <laughs> oh, John Candy and Eugene Levy. Right. Damn, I'm, I'm better than those guys. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's that's exactly what I'm getting at. I'm glad you guys read into that. <laughs> Meg Ryan, we all felt that she was accessible to us. And Julia Roberts was it. She essentially has lower standards physically than <laughs> Julia Roberts. That's right. She had Richard Gere twice. You know, Who else did Julia Roberts... Oh, yeah. Was she paired up with? Oh I, my god! Oh, Aaron Brockovich. Uh, oh, that guy um, was. Uh, she did. I remember a movie with John Cusack. So you know John Cusack, mm-hmm. who was big star. Well, how do you take the, uh, comparing the two? Because I think it's a good subject. Who, Meg matter. Ryan and Julie Roberts. Yeah. Um, you know, in a weird, with the exception of the fact that they both have done, you know, an array of romantic comedies, I really, in my opinion, feel like that's their only comparison. I think they're very different actresses. I think um, I personally like Julia Roberts a lot better. I never really was a fan of Meg Ryan that much. And I've seen several of her movies, most of them being rom-coms. You know, You've Got Mail, this one. Um, and I don't know. She never really appealed to me that much. And not, you know, I guess because you've you seen one Meg Ryan movie, I feel like you've seen them all. The thing I like about Julia Roberts, and maybe it's because I've seen more of her movies, is that I feel like I see different sides of her. You know, I see different movies, um, see her play different characters. But I definitely understand the appeal to Meg Ryan, especially at that time. Um, and I don't think that she's a bad actress. You know, she's just not my personal favorite. You know, I mean, it's. I guess I'm kind of indifferent. Like if there's a Meg Ryan movie on and there's, you know, like something else, I might, depending mm-hmm. on what something else is, might watch that. I don't know. What do you guys think? I'm not really a huge Billy Crystal fan either. So for right, me, right, it's yeah, kind of yeah. like... You know, I, I wonder, because Julie Roberts was, a, I think, a bigger star overall than Meg Ryan was, from what, what I can remember. Mm-hmm. But I always was more personally uh, liked Meg Ryan better, even though 
a lot of our movies did not even remote outside of Space, which was a fun movie. But that goes to your point. I mean, she had great chemistry with Martin Short, but she married Dennis, <laughs> Dennis Quaid. Right. <laughs> so, at the end of the day... Right. <laughs> but we're talking about the fantasy world that they created <laughs> movies. The reality. We're not that necessarily talking about it. reality, right. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I think I, Meg Ryan appealed more to me. I think she's a little bit quirkier in a more natural way than, than Julie Roberts. Julie Roberts always came off, maybe because I saw her on Oprah, but she would always talk about her. She was kind of more Hollywood, you know, to me. You know, like more, um, and this is more like a, you know, being, you know, heterosexual male than it is, you know, working, looking at their work. I don't know how their work compares really. Yeah, I'm just looking at their work. I don't see, I I haven't seen a lot of their movies. Um, you know, the, You Got Mail I saw. That was, that was Nora Ephron, right? That was Nora Sleepless Ephron. Sleepless in Seattle? Yeah, was that, that was also Nora Ephron. Yeah, yeah, so she did a Nora Ephron. She was to Nora Ephron what Robert De Niro is to uh, Martin Scorsese. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like she was kind of the muse that I think Nora And there's Ephron. nothing wrong with that. Yeah. It's great to have a director that you work well with and that they write roles for you. But at the same time, you kind of get pigeonholed into that. And I feel kind of like that's what happened with Meg Ryan's career. And that's probably why she's really not around today. That and really poor plastic surgery choices. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. But, <laughs> that lure has kind of gone yeah, away with I that. Mean, right. I, but, I, but I mean, people, she, she's typecast now. Directors see her name and they, uh, queen of rom-coms. We, I think Julia Roberts did a very smart and maybe was a little bit more strategic with her career. I mean, I know she has she has a family now, and she's kind of gotten out of the spotlight. But for the long, for a long time, in the majority of the '90s, she was doing different kinds of things, and I, I think it was smart of her not to pigeonhole herself into just the rom com. Um, and maybe Meg Ryan, that was the faucet she enjoyed the most. Who knows? But unfortunately, when you get into that a certain type of genre, it's really hard like to get out of it. Just like when you play a certain character, like Harry Potter. You know, Daniel Radcliffe has really struggled with directors and stuff taking him seriously because everybody just sees him as Harry Potter. Sometimes your best career choice at one moment in time ends up hindering your career for the long run. And I personally kind of feel like that's what happened with Meg Ryan. Um, Plus her voice, she got a little husky. Oh, did she? <laughs> did her voice like it? She know. got older? I don't know. She's kind of faded yeah. away. I don't Yeah, know. I haven't, I haven't I really know. seen her much. I, the one movie, she was in that bomb with Russell Crowe. I remember she did a movie with Russell Crowe. That was last year. Her night. career, two things happened to her career. One was the there was a huge public scandal because she had had an affair with Russell Crowe during the Proof oh. of Life movie with Dennis Quaid. It, there's, it, it was kind of unfair. There's a little bit of sexism involved with this because... It always is. Mm-hmm. If a male had been on the receiving end of that, nobody bats an eye. Nobody, I mean, Russell Crowe's career took off because of that affair. <laughs> <laughs> but Meg Ryan's uh, was hurt deeply because it was the public image. Like, Russell mm-hmm. Crowe had a public image of being a bad boy and being and a rebel. And she had one of being that America's sweetheart, rom-com yeah. sweetheart, yeah. Right, and it's not really a not fair, but... Yeah. The second was the plastic surgery. It kind of hurt her and rendered her for film roles, which I think is kind of unfair. Like, I, I do like Meg Ryan. Mm-hmm. I think beyond everything we were joking about, I think Meg Ryan was a very appealing movie star. No, I do too. I yeah. see yeah. the appeal. I just am not, you know. Right. She's not my favorite, but I definitely see that appeal. And there is actually more range than what's noted, but yeah, she was definitely pigeonholed sure. in rom-coms, yeah. but she was in, like, Oliver Stone's The Doors with Val Kilmer. She played yeah, Val, Jim Morrison's girlfriend, and uh, she was also in a really under... Uh, underrated film called Prelude to a Kiss, which you would actually like to. Why do I feel like I've heard of that? Is that a song? 
It might be a, a song. Yeah, it was a movie. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. I just went, uh, Alec Baldwin, of all people, at his yeah. peak. Yeah. And uh, we can probably delve into that another time. But there was some variance in during that time. She was encouraged yeah. under fire with Denzel Washington, where she played a soldier, believe it or oh, not. Oh, wow. Yeah, so. Like, so, I drink. Yeah, I remember see, the that. the sad yeah, thing is, that. is I haven't heard of half of these movies. And that's the sad thing. I'm sure a lot of people haven't seen or heard of half of these movies. And that's why I say it's just kind of like she did those... It, you know what it, she reminds me of? This is exactly who she reminds me of. Molly Ringwald. She's like the 90s Molly Ringwald. You know, Molly Ringwald was in all those great, really great 80s teen movies. She had a great, you know, her career was going really strong. And then all of a sudden, she just kind of like faded away or made, I don't know, I don't know what happened. She's kind of like faded away. But I always thought she was really great. I, um, That's kind of what Meg Ryan reminds me of because she did all these great, like, quintessential rom-coms that are still around today that people love but then it's like what happened she just faded away I think that's a great point because when we mentioned those movies you say I haven't heard of them that really yeah. emphasizes exactly what you were talking yeah. about which is like people don't know about that stuff it's not emphasized mm -hmm. it's the only three movies that are emphasized are When Harry Met Sally mm -hmm. Sleepless, Sleepless in, in Seattle and mm -hmm. You've Got Mail just like with Molly Ringwald, Pretty in Pink, Breakfast Club, and Sixteen Candles. Those right. are her top three. Well, I have seen Molly Ringwald in The Stand, which was on TV. She's terrible. Oh, okay. <laughs> She's terrible. <laughs> nah, I'm sorry, Molly Ringwald fans, but I, I But I think Molly I Ringwald that. has that same appeal that Meg Ryan did mm -hmm. in that that could be that, that every woman's woman. You know, she wasn't overly pretty, but she wasn't not a, I think Meg Ryan was actually very pretty. But um but at the, but she wasn't glamorous like maybe Julie Roberts is almost unrealistically pretty like Meg Ryan was still very um, mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to use the term homely because that sounds bad but she, she just was lips. a little bit well now she does but yeah, she, she was a little bit more relatable mm -hmm. than like a Julia Roberts just like Molly Ringwald was more relatable than like Phoebe Gates who was really popular in the 80s too see I never cared for Julia Roberts I guess this is a side note we yeah, can go to a Julia sure, Roberts yeah. side but just just to say yeah. like I never cared for Julia Roberts because I just felt there was just something about Julia Roberts where I felt she was egomaniacal a bit yeah. like she was her own biggest fan yeah. and I think that always carried through but yeah she I heard her on talk show she was like uh she would go to like dinner and stuff just be really rude to the wait the wait really? staff yeah wow. like, well she she admitted admitted that like an interview I saw mm -hmm. with her so she was like, apologize. She said, if you waited on me in 1990 and I was a bitch to you, I'm yeah. really sorry. But that's also, I mean, not to defend Julia Roberts, but that could also be, like with anybody, you have a lot of success. Pretty Woman, huge success. Mm -hmm. Really got her name on the map, opened up a lot of doors for her. It goes to your head. You know, I mean, not, not, I mean I'm not, I'm just saying, it's human nature, things like that happen. Mm -hmm. When you're not as big as a star, you know, you're probably... Right. Not defending her. I mean, I'm, I'm or anybody that is mean to people because I don't agree with that. But I'm just saying sometimes things get her head. It sounds like she got a little bit more humble, which is good for her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And we all wish Julia very well. <laughs> and we wish Meg Ryan. Yes, we wish Meg Ryan. Ryan the best as well. Pause. Yeah. <laughs> do they listen to your podcast? I hope so. I and if they Meg, do, Julia, we don't care what you look like. Yeah. <laughs> Either do we, Julia. Same. We, we don't we judge. Don't. We just comment. Um. Going back to when Harry met Sally, uh, there is another actress we should mention yeah. that is in this movie, uh -huh. speaking of actresses, that I think we see a side to her that we normally don't emphasize, and that's Carrie Fisher, yeah. who is terrific in this movie mm -hmm. as, as Sally's best friend. Mm -hmm. And Bruno Kirby is also excellent as, as Billy Crystal's best friend. And actually, <laughs> Bruno Kirby is the oh. guy that... Can't stand his voice. 
if you don't get Joe Pesci, you can call Bernie yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what I said last night. We were watching it, and I said, this guy is like a really bad version of Joe Pesci. You know, that's absolutely true. He is a poor man's Joe yes, Pesci. I, I'll fess up to that. Like, and actually, I would love to see Joe Pesci in this movie, because yeah. that would really take... He it. would overshadow Billy <laughs> <He> Crystal. Would. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Pesci and Carrie Fisher. Wow, what a couple that would be. Yeah, that would Holy be amazing. Holy shit. Oh, my God. Now, Bruno's not listening, because he's unfortunately... We wish Bruno very well. Is and he dead? Yeah, he died. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. Rest in <laughs> peace. And they had a falling out him and Billy Crystal. Because uh, they were good friends, weren't they? Yeah, and then they did City Slickers, and then he wasn't invited back to City Slickers, too, because they got <laughs> some kind of fight. Hey, not, getting back, not getting invited back to the sequel is one of the biggest uh, Hollywood reasons for relationships ending. That's absolutely so you know true. It. And actually, I think Bruno Kirby won out in that scenario, <laughs> I think. Um, Bruno Kirby, I think, was a friend of Rob Reiner's, though, because he was in Spinal Tap. He had a small role in Spinal Tap as the limousine driver. Oh, yeah. Wait a second. So, Bruno Kirby was in City Sickers 1. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't invite him back, but they invited back the character that they killed. And Jack <laughs> Kirby. <laughs> they, they, they killed Jack Palance's character, but they brought him back as his twin. Oh, my God. God, that, that would suck if you not call back and your character survived. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> That's very, Talk about um, egos. Well, yeah. Jack Palance is like, didn't he win like an Oscar for City Slickers? He did win an Oscar for City Slickers. <laughs> no, this, really? this is not uh, <laughs> like supporting actor or something. Yeah, he did. Well, that's he did the, like, that push was, ups on the, He did yeah, push ups Billy on Crystal stage. Crystal was the host, right? He was the host that <laughs> year. Yeah. Oh my God. This was a peak of Billy Crystal's oh, life. Yeah. yeah. When Harry met Sally, silly City Slickers and the Oscars. That was really yeah. like the peak of his popularity. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's he doing now? Oh, he's still around. Like, I think yeah, he's... He had a Broadway show uh, oh, called okay. 700 Sundays. It was about uh, his dad. I yeah. think... Yeah, and he His dad died when he was... He has a TV like show where he plays... It's kind of like a TV show of Josh Gad, I think, where he plays kind of character like himself, like an aging comedian. Oh, okay. And Josh Gad plays like a... I, think, I don't... I saw it like... It's, it's on like Amazon or FX or something like that. Last time I saw Billy Crystal, he was grieving Robin Williams for a few appearances oh, on yeah. talk shows and stuff. Because I know they were really close, yeah. and he was yes. like the kind of the the Hollywood spokesperson for Robin Williams after he passed away. Well, they did the uh, was it the comedy relief, comic relief, comic they did relief that with Whoopi Goldberg several yeah. years on HBO. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I like Whoopi Goldberg. Mm-hmm. I, I do too. Yeah, good actress yeah. too. She is. No, uh, when, when I I, well, I do remember this. Um, I remember when I was like in my early twenties, and you, you think wait a minute, that, I thought earlier you said you didn't remember. This part I do remember. <laughs> right. I, uh, I remember seeing um, Carrie Fisher, and just you know she was like five years older than she was when she you know wore the bikini, and yeah. yeah. And I just I don't know. I was thinking, what happened? Yeah, I, and she she wasn't like you know ugly or anything, but it's just when when you're like in your early twenties, you think anybody like thirty and older is just is just so old. Mm-hmm. So um, no, but she does look dramatically different in this movie than she does in Star Wars, which yeah. was only a few years prior. I, I think she like, did. But really, she looks very different yeah. with the short hair and. I think this role reflects Carrie Fisher in real life I too, do too. Which yeah. Carrie Fisher is extraordinarily funny. She oh, was a goodness. script doctor for several years. What? Really? Yeah, she was. What's she that? would know what's that. Script doctor is somebody that like studios will pay or. You know, we'll pay someone to come in and and, and flesh out a script or make uh, what they call script repairs. You know, like they would actually come in and like, okay, this needs fixing. Maybe fix up yeah. dialogue because she's really good with dialogue. 
and she's written like Postcards from the Edge, which was a novel, you know, which was made oh, into a film starring Meryl Streep. Yeah. Oh, then I'm sure it's good. It was based on a relationship with Debbie Reynolds because Carrie Fisher oh, had yeah. struggled with drug addiction and oh, yeah. things of that yeah. nature. So I think she was on drugs when she did Star Wars. She was. Yeah. yeah. They, they lived a hard and fast life. Yeah. Uh, I know Harrison Ford partook in which is why she was thin <laughs> yeah. oh, really? she was on drugs you know oh. but I she's also like I saw her speak at Ohio State a few years ago wow. um, and she's really really funny mm-hmm. like you guys it's been oh, yeah she's gotten a lot of attention for her interview on Good Morning America recently which with was hilarious when she brought the dog <laughs> yeah she was so funny that was good to see because people are rediscovering Carrie Fisher beyond just being a Star Wars sure. actor now and you know because she's always going to be remembered as Princess Leia yeah but and she realizes that. Yeah, and she embraces it actually mm-hmm. to to her credit. But she also has this other career. Like at the late '80s, she was actually getting a lot of supporting roles in movies, and this mm-hmm. was one of them. And I think, like, it's great to see her in this movie where she's it's more reflective of her own personality, where she can be funny and witty, yeah. and she's she's not carrying the film. She doesn't have mm-hmm. to worry about being a romantic lead. And I think that suits her maybe better than like a a, a traditional sure. leading role. Yeah. Yeah, and. Uh, it's interesting. Well, she's more of a character actress. She and is. But getting back to Bruno Kirby, because he's oh, an interesting character. <laughs> okay. They made him a writer, which has cracked me up the whole movie, because all they show him doing is, like, everyman stuff, like, playing bass. Not that me being a writer is... But, you know, he was... You know, Nora Ephron loves writers. Like, she has... Because she is a writer. Uh, well, yeah, a lot of the romantic interests in her movies, I think, are writers. Well, that's why in You've Got Mail, they had the books. They own the yeah. bookstores. Yeah. She owned the books. Was he a writer? Oh, yeah, he owned the competing bookstore. He owned, store. like, the, bo- the borders to yeah. her little mom-and-pop bookshop. But it does come off... Their relationship does come off really natural when they, they meet and, you know... Well, Tom Hanks is an exceptional leading well, man. Well, I'm talking about Bruno, um, Bruno Kirby and Fisher. <laughs> oh, I thought you were talking about... <laughs> that, too. You've got mail. <laughs> yeah. it, pretty much Tom Hanks and anything is gold. We apologize to Tom Hanks for comparing him to Bruno Kirby. <laughs> yes, just I in sincerely advance. apologize. Tom Hanks is a poor man's Bruno Kirby. No, heck no. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Bruno Kirby paved the way for multiple Tom Hanks characters. Well, you were mentioning, like, uh, Nora Ephron is a writer, and uh, her first film was actually, that I, that I can remember her writing, was a movie called Heartburn, which was kind of a flop. It wasn't a very good movie. Um, it came out in 86. I feel like I've heard of that. Yes. Yeah. Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep played... God, that was a flop? That's Seriously, hard to believe. I agree. Yeah. It was directed by Mike Nichols. Oh, my... What? How could that be a flop? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I have to see this. It, it, I have seen it. It, it. it doesn't really... It lacks an edge. Like, you can still feel she's learning the ropes, but she was married to Carl Bernstein of Woodward and Bernstein. Uh, Woodward and Bernstein were responsible for Watergate. They broke the Watergate oh. story in the 70s. Okay. Huge. Yeah, like, They were, like, as famous as journalists could be at that time. And she was married to Carl Bernstein, and Heartburn was based on her relationship with Carl Bernstein. So Nicholson was playing the substitute Carl Bernstein, and Meryl <laughs> Streep was playing the, the movie? Jack Nicholson. Was Jack, Jack no, Nicholson. Mike Nichols was not in the movie; he was just a director. Mike Nichols directed it. Yeah, Mike, yeah. Mike Nichols didn't really act much after Nichols and May broke up. Yeah. He was mostly a, a filmmaker. Which The Graduate, that. amazing film. Right, it, it is. You can't deny it is. We've covered a lot of rabbit holes with Henry Miss yeah. Sally today with, with so many different angles. We should angles. do the graduate well, one. I think that's true because this movie does homage to a lot of other it movies. It really does. It does. I mean, it seems like it definitely homages to Woody Allen using the jazz music, you know, the type of dialogue, you have the neurotic... Even the costumes. Costumes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it almost... It's like it's it, Rob Reiner's attempt to make a Woody Allen film. And he does a fairly good job at it, you know? Yeah. 
outside of being uh, Woody Allen's, I mean, that movie's a lot better than a lot of Woody Allen movies. So, you know, mm-hmm. what are you gonna, you know, he outdid Woody Allen in a lot of Woody Allen movies. Yeah, I think when we think of Woody Allen, like, oh, he, it's a watered down Annie Hall. It's really what it is. It's comparing it to Annie Hall. And I think it's always going to be compared to Annie Hall. Woody, ha- Woody Allen made a lot of watered down Annie Halls in his day, too. I can see that point entirely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you have a judgment? Do you have an opinion on that? Um, no, but I do want to say the first time I saw uh, Bruno Kirby, he was <laughs> <laughs> this is a movie called The Heron Experiment. What? And it was uh, it was this college. I think it was called Herod, maybe Herod College, and when Harry met college. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 like, there's a trilogy. <laughs> so, so the movie was they. Uh, it was like co-ed dorms, and there was like this experiment to see what would happen if they put, uh, you know, male and female roommates together. And it was like, the, uh, the reason I watched it, because it was on, my friend had the movie channel, it was like in 1980, so I'd have been like 13 years old, and my friend had the movie channel, so I'd, I'd like to go over there and watch anything, it had a lot of nudity in it, so it was like, Bruno Kirby, <laughs> and he was like, he, he was roomed with this like really hot blonde girl, and she she couldn't stand him, and, but they're like naked the whole movie, so it was I saw. I think wow, I saw. Wow, it Bruno sounds like Kirby. that eyes wide shut. <laughs> <laughs> but it's Bruno Kirby, though. You know, you it's not. He was in. I forgot he was in Godfather Two, right? Yeah. No, three, two. No, no you're right. Two. Yeah, he was in, he was in the Godfather Part Two. Yes. He played the younger version of uh, one of the henchmen, right? Like I think it was the. Uh, he was with. He was in those scenes with uh, Robert De Niro, right? He was. He was in 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 the uh, flashback sequences with De Niro's oh, Vito wait. Corleone. Shoot. Was he the younger Alex Rocco? He's Peter Clemenza. Clemenza. He was Clemenza. Clemenza is the guy that yeah. uh, gave uh, Michael the gun. Or he he stashed the, the gun in the Spoiler bathroom. Spoiler alert! Have you seen it? <laughs> we, we did that scene yeah. where he uh, he stashed the gun in the bathroom, and then Michael yeah. comes in, grabs the gun, and goes in and shoots those guys. That's the scene that we did in the oh, box. Oh, in box. Okay. Yeah. Oh, he's the guy that's uh, hiding it for you. I had yeah, admittedly, I've never seen the Godfather's movies, which... I know it's, I'm Italian, so that should be a sin. Yeah. But I've never seen them. We'll correct that for you yeah. <laughs> eventually. Um, but uh, yeah, I totally forgot that Bruno Kirby was in the Godfather. I did part too. Two. Yeah. Now yeah. that you mention it, he absolutely. Well, he was great in that. Actually, I thought he was. And great. he's in the Freshman. Yeah. So he is in the Freshman. Freshman. He plays the the the. Uh, you know what? I like Bruno Kirby. <laughs> 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 I, I've enjoyed a lot of his work. I, I, if there's anything I wanted to accomplish with this podcast today, it's to raise and elevate Bruno Kirby's profile more than anything else. Uh, and what's I name? take that back. All the bad things I said about him. Uh, the main guy in the freshman, not Matthew Broderick, uh, the guy, the Godfather guy. Uh, Which one? The, the main guy, the Godfather. Oh. Why can't I think of his name? Who plays Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando. Yeah, yeah. Marlon Brando was going on talk shows when the freshman came out. And just panning, he's just like, oh, you know, so, so, so ter- I can't even do Brando. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> he's like telling people what a terrible uh, movie it was. Really? Yeah. Wow. You, you, you saw the first one? No. No. It's like 1990. It's a good movie. Yeah, I like Matthew Broderick though. Matthew well, Broderick. It's 1990. Matthew Broderick. You have to see The Godfather, then you have to watch the first one. Well, <laughs> I'll, okay, I won't preface it by saying. <laughs> <laughs> the movie that you have to see is a freshman. I'm just saying, if after you watch The Godfather, you watch The Freshman, and it kind of makes sense. Yeah, Martin Brando is kind of uh, a Godfather type character. In the yeah. Okay. Are yeah. they? Cor- do these movies correlate at any no. point or no? Okay. No, that's the only thing. Is it's kind of a fun homage. Talk about homages. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a big one. So, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I actually just learned uh, on that note that uh, Nora Ephron was also married to Nicholas Pileggi, who was a screenwriter to Goodfellas and Casino for 20 years. Oh. So there you go. Now, did Nora Ephron, was she ever like an author? Did she ever write romance novels? Because I just feel like she did. That... So she just wrote screenplays, right? Just screenplays, okay. okay. I, I, that's what well, I'm there, asking. There's got to be, Nora Roberts is the romance novelist that I'm confusing her with. No, Nora Ephron was actually, uh, she was basically a journalist. Like, she actually, uh, she worked for the New York Post for a long time. And, uh, well, actually, it looks like she lampooned the New York Post. Um, essentially, she was a journalist, and she, she married Woodward, and I think she started writing screenplays. Okay. She became a screenwriter. And uh, then she elevated, she became a director later on when she started directing movies like Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail. Which was just a ripoff of An Affair to Remember. Uh, Sleepless in Seattle? Sleepless, yeah. I mean, it was definitely influenced by that movie. And definitely Big took, time. Yeah. Have you seen it? took it? the plot yeah, <laughs> yeah. of An Affair to Remember. Well, they actually Which watch... Which I uh, love that movie because, well, Cary Grant. Mean I say anything else? Well... Mm-hmm. They actually do reference. They actually yeah. watch a fair uh-huh. to remember in the movie. Mm-hmm. So maybe that was like. No, it was. You're right. Yeah, it was like it totally based was. off of an affair to yeah. remember. So what we've also learned here, gang, is that Nora Ephron rips off <laughs> movies that she's seen in the past and rewrites them as her own, as she did with Annie Hall. <laughs> some some <laughs> would call it a homage <laughs> <laughs> to a fair to remember. Let's call so. it spade a spade. <laughs> Well, yeah. there's no new uh, ideas under the sun. You've Got Mail, right. wasn't that a remake of something, too? Uh, that was that was a remake of The Shop Around the Corner with Jimmy Stewart. That's yeah, yeah. That was a remake. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that was, uh, so that's my and I think point, it was credited as a, as a remake. Yeah. Yeah. Was it? It's a modernization exactly. of that. Uh, well, so are the other two. Right. Well, it's exactly. like when you do Shakespeare. You like Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, but it was Romeo and Juliet. They didn't mind the fact that it was Shakespeare. That was Romeo, Romeo plus Juliet. Juliet. Yeah, Pl- Romeo plus Juliet, exactly. <laughs> plus a really, actually great soundtrack. That movie had a good soundtrack. It had that song, um, Everybody's Free. Remember that? Okay. <laughs> the one with Leo DiCaprio? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I remember, that. I remember the, the movie, but I think I quit watching it when I realized it was just them. Uh, with the original words, so mm-hmm. I was going to understand it. So I, it was oh, just right. like, yeah, exactly. So they didn't pretend to be anything that it wasn't, really. But So what's everybody's final thoughts on what Harry was saying? <laughs> well, now I, I can't even think straight. Oh, I, 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 always, yeah. uh, I always have to say a scene that I hate. Like in every movie, like uh, Forrest Gump, there's like three or four scenes. As much as I like the movie, there's like three or four things I hate about it. But uh, So the, the one thing I hated was when she was, she talked about somebody grabbed a hair and uh, her date grabbed her oh, hair and flossed yeah. her teeth. I just thought that was pretty lame. Yeah. So, I always have to mention That's like unrealistic. No one yeah. would ever do yeah. that. Yeah, who would really do that? I have to floss. Man, borrow a piece of hair I do it all the time, you know, with me. <laughs> um, I I do like this movie um, a lot. Um, I, you know, it's not something that blows me away and would it make my top 15, no. But I do enjoy it. <laughs> Uh, I think it's one of the higher end romantic comedies. I could see why it's influenced yeah. everything, and I kind of wish more comedies were like this than not. Yeah. And I think maybe that has more to do with you mean the low romantic s- comedies. Yes, yeah. romantic comedies. 
Uh, I mean, all comedies. I think they should all <laughs> elevate. Dumb and Dumber should elevate the yeah, right. Hire Billy Crystal. But uh, I, I think a lot of romantic comedies could take notes from this film because I think it's just a low bar that's stated for romantic comedies. There's just not a lot of really good ones that stand out. There are, there are more poor romantic comedies, like Absolutely. slasher films. Yeah. There's so many bad slasher films. Because they get that formula and they run with it, yeah. Right, and it's cheap to make, and they know mm-hmm. that there's always going to be an audience that comes out to see them. But yeah. this is an intelligent romantic comedy. I think it, it certainly passes the bar. No, it's not Annie Hall. No. no, it's not Manhattan or any of Woody Allen's best films. Or an affair to remember. No, you know, it's not the Philadelphia story. story. <laughs> it's not bringing up baby. But I think it's a very good, well-crafted romantic comedy. Sure. You know, with, For the time and whatnot, in the 90s, yeah. Yeah, I think they do an intelligent job of utilizing music. It's subtle. It doesn't draw a lot of attention to itself, necessarily. I think it's the characters are very relatable. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they you know, have really good chemistry. I think you mm-hmm. do buy that they're actually going to get together eventually. And I think Bruno Kirby and Carrie Fisher do a good job of supporting them yeah. and reflecting them. You know, mm-hmm. they're kind of contrasting them in yeah. a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So I think that's uh, that's a plus for it. Yes, I, I think it's a great movie. Uh, well, I shouldn't say great, but it's a, it's a great movie <laughs> for what it tries to be. Um, I do think... You know, despite a lot of things I said about, you know, like I think Billy Crystal is just doing a stand-up act the whole movie to mm-hmm. Meg Ryan at some point. Meg like, Ryan's just kind of like, she's like doing reacting his and like really, yeah. huh? You know, um, but uh, I, it was enjoyable and I, I like the the running time. It's only an hour and thirty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't really discussed that in detail. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. It, it, it was efficient. Well, I, I say, like, by the time you get kind of sick of watching it's it, a, it's over. Yeah. That's true. You can't say that enough about no, movies. That's very true. Yeah. It doesn't ever say it's welcome. <laughs> and that might seem like a huge, like, backhanded compliment, but I, I really think it, it, it's it's a well done movie. Yeah. It's well crafted, like you said. It's it's as this movie's as as good as it's gonna be. There's no like they leave a lot to you know outside of a few scenes, you know. I think they did. They got the most out of what the material that they had, and um, it was a huge hit. I made like you know mm-hmm. ninety two million, which is probably about two hundred million now. Mm-hmm. So that was a huge hit, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, yeah. what can you say? It, it is. And if, if people are interested in checking out when Harry met Sally, uh, it's definitely out there uh, on Blu-ray. <laughs> and I have to. I basically echo everything that these three said. Okay. Yeah. You know, I, thing. Oh, it, well, you said yeah, you didn't like that part. Oh yeah, you got to get. Yeah, we got. Oh, I, I, yeah, here's some opinions like on the table. Yeah. That's, which I. I what do you think about the running time? Yeah. Let's talk about yeah. that. <laughs> Let's uh, keep yeah the running time going. Yeah. No, I, I think I think everything you guys said was really substantial and accurate for the movie. I mean, um, it didn't wow me, but it wasn't. I didn't feel like I lost an an hour and a half of my life in a bad way. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think it's a for what it is. It was. Well done, you know, for a, a rom com. I think they did a good job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I did too. I not that. I mean, it's you know, somebody something everybody. I think it's one something has everybody has to see once. And I, I don't mm-hmm. feel like I have to watch this movie over and over again like some no. movies. Yeah, I do. Yeah, me neither. Uh, I, I think I've seen it two or three times, um, but I, I, I mm-hmm. pretty much remember everything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, go see it if you haven't seen it. I, it's, it's, it's short. It's a it's short, short movie. movie. Yeah. <laughs> it is, and it, and it's available on Blu-ray. Experience the orgasm for yourself. <laughs> yeah, and it's available on Blu-ray uh, right now. Um, 
that I already we're advertising. Yeah, we're advertising a movie. Whether we everybody's seen. I think it's the best way. Like I always say at the end of the podcast, I think Blu-ray is the best way to experience a film if you're not able to see it in the theater. Is the there movie. a director's cut of this movie? Probably there is yeah. not, but they do have special features. Where Rob Reiner talks about they didn't, they couldn't get either. Billy Crystal or Meg Ryan to contribute to the special wow, features, but I'm it's surprised. Rob Reiner they and could? Efron. No, well, I don't know if they could. They maybe probably. Rob Reiner's like, you guys don't need to talk about this. <laughs> that might be why. Yeah, that might have been a budgetary issue too. Yeah. Like they couldn't afford to have them, but uh, it's out there. Uh, I think it was released about two or three years ago. They, like I said, Rob Reiner gives an in-depth interview on the creation of the movie, and he also gives a pretty interesting commentary on it as well. I'd be well, curious to know if he mentions Annie Hall. Oh, I think it's I mentioned. Know, like, you know, I know he. Was definitely influenced by Woody Allen, at least in the making of this film. Because he started off as saying, I, I ripped off Annie Hall. So here we go. <laughs> this is my take on if, Annie Hall. If we sanitize Annie Hall and take all the quirks out and give it a happy ending, what would happen? Annie Hall, too, when Harry met Sally. That's right. <laughs> well, uh, we want to thank Mark for coming on yeah. as our guest Mark. today. He was an excellent guest. and uh, He's the strong, me. silent type. Yeah. That's right. And we all love Mark. And mm-hmm. Mark, I know you're involved with a few. Uh, uh, improv trips in Columbus if you wanted to oh yeah actually uh, I'm in CU Thursday and um, we perform twice a month at the Wild Goose Creative on Friday second Friday and fourth Friday and uh, the show that uh, I direct a show and uh, actually Scott Sean and Tony are in it in addition to a few other people uh, we uh, it's called Idiot Box and we um, basically kind of a unique show we do parodies of tv shows which isn't necessarily new but uh we just kind of do them like in a, fa- a quick fashion and um uh it's a really high energy show and uh i you know we've gotten like a really a lot of good response from the audience um i think it's uh, a unique thing that uh really hasn't been done a whole or i don't even know if it's ever been done exactly like we do it mm-hmm. uh and so we don't have any set dates but we do uh we typically do a show like every other month so Look on Facebook for Columbus Unscripted's Idiot Box and like us. Yeah. And, and come mm-hmm. to a show. And yeah. we do, uh, I think, uh, a good way to say it is like we do like impressions, yeah. improv, and uh, sketch comedy. Yeah. So it's, it's more kind of, of a yeah. sketch comedy show. So if you mm-hmm. enjoy that kind of thing, you'll definitely like it. If you enjoy Bruno, Bruno Kirby, you're going to enjoy this. My high recommendation. There's a big correlation between the two. <laughs> Well, uh, thanks a lot for listening, everybody. Uh, Go out and check out When Harry Met Sally. Let us know what you think of it. And uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. 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 resembling anything.